We uh, we began last week to uh, examine the mysteries of God, specifically the mysteries that are referred to in much of the New Testament and that have been revealed to uh, a select few, God's elect here in this end time. We sometimes overlook these. We sometimes take them for granted. We talked about this last week. So we began reviewing those mysteries of God by learning that we are always to highly esteem them uh, and make sure that we, as we pass them down to the, our children and others who would come into the church, that they esteem them as well. Because he's, he's revealed them to us, and he has made them exclusive in this respect. We'll see this as we go through them. Uh, there's a scripture, Deuteronomy 29, 29. I'll just read this for you. Deuteronomy 29, 29 that says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which, he, which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So God chooses to hide and reveal certain things. And to whom he hides and reveals them should know this and understand it. It's also significant to know not only what he chooses to hide and reveal, but to whom he has chosen to reveal them and hide them from. That Those ideas, that uh, those parameters have implications for our part in the plan for all of humanity and specifically our calling, election, and uh, faithfulness in this age. The, I was trying to decide which of those 14 to go through first, and uh, uh, after, I, after I thought about that a while, it was actually a no-brainer. Perhaps the most important of these mysteries is God himself. God himself. In Isaiah 45 and verse 15, Isaiah writes, Truly you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Turn with me please to Colossians chapter 2, where Paul refers to this in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2, we'll read verses 1 through 3. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, Paul's face. Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this phrasing, uh, the knowledge of the mystery of God, some may think is a reference to the mysteries that God has or the mystery that he is hiding, specifically about his plan for man and so on. Uh, but this phrasing afterwards, Paul clarifies. He says, both of the Father and of Christ is an indication that God himself is the mystery he's referring to here. That phrasing, the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's an indication here that God must be known before those other mysteries can be understood. The title of this message is The Mysteries of God, Part 2, The Mystery of God. God reveals who he is. He reveals that. That is not just found out. I'll explain that as we go through this. God reveals who he is, 
His existence can be recognized in his creation. He says that. We'll go through that. And his substance of what he is to learn about him can be studied in his word, and many do. But God's essence, who he is, the heart of God, he must reveal. That is the mystery. Let's go through these one by one here. First, looking at God's existence. How do we know God's existence? God does not have to reveal that he is. His creation does it for him. And those who see him in his creation can learn of him by learning of his creation, by simply looking around. Uh, In Psalm 14 and verse 1, uh, in fact, let's go there. Psalm 14, verse 1, this is also uh, di- different phrasing, but is repeated in Psalm 53 and verse 1. Psalm 14, 1. Uh, and this is, again, this is the Bible speaking. This is, I'm simply reading it. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Paul uses some of that phrasing when he talks about the blindness that people are in today. But the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And again, Psalm 53, verse 1 repeats that. There are many today, and a continuing growing number of fools, again, not my word, but God's, that refuse to acknowledge God's existence. Why would he call them Fools, um, and I to this point, I as far as I am concerned at this point in my conversion, maybe you are as well. I I refuse to banter with fools over this subject when when his existence is so obvious all around us. Why do we have to argue that? Forget all the ineffective arguments refuting the arrogant distraction of evolution, and that's what it is. It's an arrogant distraction. We should, go, we should be so far beyond that it shouldn't even matter anymore. God does not hide the evidence of his existence. Look at Psalm 19 here. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. They declare God's glory. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day-to-day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, and so on, and so on. It is absurd, and it is irrational to even entertain the idea That everything God has created around us, all the design that we see, all the symmetry that we see, all the beauty that we see, instead simply happened by random chance. Skilled mathematicians have evaluated this and have determined not only is the probability so incredibly small, it's null. It is not possible that all of this could have happened by chance. In fact, it's so not possible, it doubles the definition of null. And and that's just just probability. Looking at all the detail that we see around us and all the design and, and making an assumption that God does not exist 
Why? Because he hasn't opened your mind or you haven't sought him or don't want to? This is the real argument that we go through in this age as to whether God exists or not. But he says in his word, it's obvious. And if those who don't recognize it, he calls fools. Let's look at Psalm 10 here. Psalm 10 verses 1 through 4. Psalm 10 verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? This is a question many ask today. How can God exist if there are all these troubles in the world and he does nothing about it? They don't know God. They don't know his plan. They don't know his will, his intentions. He's revealed them to a select few, but not to all. Verse 2. The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. This is where this comes from. I don't want to know God because if I know God, now I got to do what God wants me to do. I want to do what I want to do. It's my life. It's my life. I got news for you. No, it's not. Verse 3, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, he blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. Notice this. I've, I've listened to atheists talk sometimes and speak, and as they, as they explain where they're at, at least try to, they actually make reference to God, and they actually talk themselves into a corner where they actually admit, I just don't want to do what God says. The wicked in his pride, uh, in his pride countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Again, it's absurd. It's irrational to entertain any other option other than that God created all of this. There is an intelligence behind it that must be acknowledged. And if we don't, we are on the same level as what God calls fools here. Those who refuse to see God blind themselves, he does not have to hide from them. It's not what he does. God's existence is obvious for those who want to see it. Look at Romans 1. We've read this so often, but we should be reading it in this this context. Verses 18 through 25, Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hold it back. They, They push it down. Uh, intently. They know it's the truth. They don't like it. They, they push it away. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, his existence, they did not glorify him as God. Notice the separation there. They knew that this was all created by intelligence given to man, but decided not to acknowledge that. How should they acknowledge it? Glorify him and be thankful. Nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. The concept of evolution is taught by fools. That's Selah. 
Let's, let's understand that. If you've been taught by fools, yeah, I was taught evolution. I was taught by individuals who deliberately blinded their own eyes to the existence of God so they can have an alternative, any basis for an alternative, that is by all probability not possible. Be mindful of what you're being taught, even here. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They, God doesn't exist. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. You should see where this leads. Some of our young people don't see this yet. They haven't been around long enough. But as you get older, you will see where it leads. This this false concept that God doesn't exist and I can do whatever I want. I'm going to base that on something that's so improbable, it's impossible. That's what other, what else is that but a fool? I don't want to debate evolution with them. I'm not going to get into a scientific debate. I'm not a scientist. I, I know what I see. It's not that difficult. It's not that complex. Verse 24, therefore God also gave them up unto uncleanness to the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. We're seeing that all over the place today. Verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature or the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God's existence, frankly, simply can be known by what he has made. We just need to acknowledge it, just need to see it for what it is. Unfortunately, most do not acknowledge intelligent design uh, in this day and age. But those who do, those who do acknowledge uh, intelligence in the design of God's creation, will most often, who are apart from God's word, apart from submitting to his word, will worship the creation instead of the creator at one level or another. It's the basis for idolatry. So in, in many cases, they've gone off in a direction that has blinded them to God, even though God's existence is obvious. Let's move to the second concept here, knowing God in substance. We all know God in, exi- in his existence. We have proof of it all around us. We tie that then to the scriptures, and we learn from them God's substance God doesn't have to reveal what he is. His word does it for him. Just as the creation reveals his existence, God's word reveals his substance, what he is. And those who seek him in his word can learn about him. This is unfortunately usually academic in most people's minds. There's a reason that it separates from academic to truly being changed by it. God's word is not viewed as something by most that can actually change them. It's something they know. It's knowledge that they have that they can refer to and even direct themselves by. But there's there's no sense of uh, changing of oneself in what God reveals in these things. And notice as we go through these, and there are seven of them, as we go through these, how knowing them is not enough. And we'll expand on it as we go through this. There is something deeper in what God reveals about himself that these things don't tell us. 
or don't tell the average person who looks into them. The first one is in Leviticus 11, a number of different places in Scripture. We'll spend some time on these uh, because I want to show by these how it's so difficult for so many to be changed by them. God is, God is holy. That's number one. God is holy. Leviticus 11, Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45. It's interesting that in this, this um, section of Scripture that he's actually talking about here uh, unclean uh, animals, uh, things that maybe some men would consider food that God did not make for food. Uh, he says this, though, verse 44. He says, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves. That means separate yourselves from what's going on around you. This is a constant theme throughout Scripture to those who truly know God. Shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, set apart, sanctified, uh, for I am holy. So we are to be as holy and set apart from all this around us as God is himself. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. That in and of itself is an amazing clue of God's plan. Why are we to be holy as God is holy? There are other verses, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 2 in Leviticus, chapter 20, verse 26, also 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Peter 1, which we'll read in a moment. God is uniquely himself. He is eternally unique of himself. He is unchanging. He is set apart from what he has designed, his creation, and he's not restricted by the parameters of what he creates. Although some people read this and then form an idol made by their own hands from his creation to worship instead of him. But few understand what it means when he says, Become holy as he is holy. Let's look at 1 Peter 1 here and verse 16. 1 Peter 1 and verse 16. Uh, let's, let's back up into verse 13 here and read forward. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. There's another clue that many just read over. I know this. For 26 years, I prayed to God as father without understanding I was his son, that I was his offspring made in his image and all the implications of that. Many, many of us did. As obedient children, verse 14, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy, what? In your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. That's a, a focus that many don't transition to. They read it, they understand it, they may even view God as holy. But how does that transfer to them? It's not clearly understood. The second aspect of the substance of God is that God is spirit. Let's go back to John 4. God is spirit. John 4 and verse 24. This is the Christ again meeting uh, the woman by the well, the Samaritan woman. And there was a, uh, a discussion going on here. Some would call it an argument um, that, that where God is worshipped is the most important thing. 
And Christ was trying to explain something deeper. He summarizes this in verse 24, John 4, 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. I'm in John 5. Sorry, one page over. John 4, 24. I thought that verse was a little long. John 4, 24. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This concept of spirit is very, very difficult for a fleshly mind and somebody who's surrounded by and only thinks on the physical plane to understand. The best description of it is non-physical. Non-physical. Uh, you can also see this reference to God as spirit in Second Corinthians 3, also Numbers 23. But usually this concept of spirit is is tried to it is it is um, defined by things that are non-physical. So you compare it to what is physical and you say anything outside of that is spirit. But it goes deeper than that. It goes into mindsets and thinking and reasoning of who we are inside that is not the physical part of us. Spiritual elements, spiritual aspects that help us to understand things like love and joy and peace and patience that science can't really quantify or define very well. There ha- we have to have this understanding that there's a spiritual nature in all of us to which God as spirit connects. This is mostly under- misunderstood or not understood at all by others who read this, who know it is knowledge and can espouse it. A mind that is highly trained in human science particularly struggles with this. I'm not knocking science. I'm knocking someone who's solely dedicated to that as a as the as their thinking element, the portion of their reasoning that there has to be a broader perspective. There has to be a deeper perspective of the things in life that truly matter. Um, they, but they do struggle to understand this, and you see many people understand trying to understand God as spirit, but not understanding. The third one is God is one. God is one. He says this in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. We probably don't need to turn there. The Jews call that the schema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Too often this is looked at again from a physical perspective as the element one versus one in spirit. We, As you develop and read the scriptures and assign uh, understanding to that statement, other places like Mark 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 3, we recognize there's something else there. This is a spiritual description of a spiritual unity that defines God. And unfortunately, it escapes most, and it leads to false doctrine that limits the family of God and hides the gospel of his kingdom. Let's look at John 17 here in that respect, just so that we can see there's something deeper than what most people see when they learn this. John 17, verses 20 uh, through 23. This is uh, Christ, again, praying to his father the night before he was killed. Verse 20 of John 17. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I mentioned this last week. We did not see any of these events. We did not witness any of them. We believe these things because of their word, what they wrote down. Verse 21, that they 
all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Think deeply on that. The complete, utter level of unity that the Logos and uh, who became the Christ and God who became the Father have had from everlasting to everlasting. No disagreement at all. No differences. Two different entities completely and utterly aligned. He wants us to share in that. We have to understand much more deeply who God is before we can do that because it requires something of us. We'll get into that. You, you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. This is not just a matter of us having this unity, but being in that unity, sharing in the unity they have shared from everlasting to everlasting. That the world may believe that you sent me. When that unity, our unity in them, is seen and understood by those from outside of that, they will know that the one God sent is the Christ. Verse 22, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. See how much deeper this is, this concept of one? Uh, some take that and, and turn God into a pretzel. I remember these things being brought to Sunday school classes when I was a boy. A triangle, three sides, a pretzel. But you know, we also do this sometimes as well. We see two beings in the Godhead right now. God the Father, God the Son. And we think that's all that is. That is what defines God. Well, if you do that, you deny the entire gospel, which is that every human being will have an opportunity to be part of the family of God. Now, that takes it to a whole new level that we must have much deeper understanding of the truly understand how God is one. Let's, let's go on. Number four, God is light. I'll say these in unison, these three together. God is light, resplendent. Number five, God is life, eternal. And number six, God is love. He is love everlasting. In these three, there is the there is this uh, understanding that must be there to go from these physical representations to something bigger, something broader. Love is not a physical representation, but there's something about this that tells us something of the very nature of God that is difficult to understand without having revealed knowledge. God is light resplendent. You can see this in Psalm 27, verse 1. Also Psalm 31 and verse 5. But let's go to 1 John 1 here. 1 John chapter 1. This also expresses, this the scripture expresses to some degree God's love in his uh, everlasting mercy and how often we can go before him and how he is waiting to grant us repentance and forgive us uh, John, First uh, John 1, verses 5 through 7. This is the message which we have heard from him in reference to Christ um, and declare to you that God is light. There's that phrasing. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, 
we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This, the, this phrasing is something we should remember. So we, there are plenty who recognize this scripture and can recall it. God is light. But notice the response to it that John talks about. We, have to, can't, we can't continue to walk in darkness. Uh, if we say that we know God, and, and, and we say we have fellowship with him at that level, Father and Son, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This is about practicing the truth, which many who can recall this scripture and others like it, that God is light, don't take on, don't follow, don't keep his word. Uh, life eternal. God is life eternal. Look at Psalm 90 here. Psalm 90. We'll read verses 1 and 2. There are many other scriptures, especially in the Psalms that describe this as well. But let's just do this one. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. Um, actually, Psalm 91 no, and 93 are also uh, related to this. Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place uh, in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are God. Christ in John 5 talks about God giving him life inherent As God, his Father has life inherent. God is life. God God shares life. Uh, Being with no beginning or no end is a concept that escapes the fleshly mind. Can any of us understand how God has no beginning or how God has no end? That is one of those challenges in drawing to understand him and know him that we may not completely fully understand in this age, but it's something that changes us as we pursue it. The last one here is in John, or God, is love everlasting. This is in 1 John 4. I'll just give you this reference. 1 John 4, verses 8 and 18, where it says specifically, God is love. We see this in Jeremiah 31 and other places throughout the scriptures where God's mercy and his loving kindness is shown. How he is immeasurably patient, uh, forever merciful, as David describes him. God is love. And this is one of the aspects of God that everyone can embrace or think they embrace. Most who know this embrace it but struggle to emulate it, his love. We do as well. But within that love, the fact that God is love is something they don't like. And that's number seven. Number seven, God is a consuming fire. There are aspects that the, his word describe of God that there is a point in time where he has had enough, uh, where everything has to be cleansed. We saw this in practice in the flood where Noah and his family were the only ones that were saved. We've seen this on smaller scales in cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, Nineveh, other places. But there's something that's often forget about, we forget about when we see God as love, that within love 
is this plan that he has, this purpose that he has that we cannot ignore. Let's uh, look at uh, Hebrews here. Hebrews 10. We'll read verses 26 through 31. Hebrews 10 and verse 26. For, so we're we're given this great opportunity that we'll we'll, we'll examine as we go forward and look at all 14 of these mysteries, how that through Christ we have access to God, this incredible privilege. Uh, Verse 26, he says here, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, uh, for sins. He also mentions this in Hebrews uh, chapter 6. It talks about individuals who have been given this heavenly gift, the Spirit of God, the understanding all that brings, and they begin living it, becomes part of them, and then turn back. There is no hope for them, and they, they cannot start on that path of repentance again and go forward. Verse 27, But a certain fearful expectation of judgment, God, there will be a judgment at some point, and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be a thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, completely just ignored or rejected or belittled the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Look at um, Hebrews 12 and the end of uh, that chapter. Uh, Let's begin reading verse 28 through 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's our part. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. At some point in time, he wipes out everything and preserves everything that fire does not kill. Eventually, it will be spirit. You can look at Nahum chapter 1 and verse 2 here. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 24 all describe God as a consuming fire. Again, there is a point at which God's love and patience, his love never ends. His patience never ends. But when those take advantage of it, when they don't respond or reject him totally, uh, it's a fearful thing. This, these are not the only things that, re, that the scriptures reveal to us about the substance of God. You've heard these before, and I'll give you some references, that God is ever-present, omnipresent. We hear that as a description of God. That is biblical. You can see that in Acts 17, verses 27 and 28. He can see all things. He can be everywhere at any time he wants. There's some indication in Scripture that that is actually who he is. God is all-knowing. That's the second one. He knows all things. 1 Samuel 2, verse 3. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, Acts 15, and verse 18. All references that God is all-knowing and that God is almighty. Genesis 17, 1. Genesis 17, 1. Exodus 18, 11. A whole slew of scriptures, including Matthew 19, 
Verse 26, all authority given to Christ. In uh, 28 and verse 18. Again, but all of these elements in recognizing God, in reading these things in the scriptures, and this is something many have done, doesn't necessarily produce the kind of change God is looking for in those who possess that knowledge of his substance. Okay, God is ever-present. Well, that means I can hide when I do something I don't think he likes. No. No. God is all-knowing. He sees you. He sees what's going on in your mind and in your heart. And when you decide to go to a pathway or a direction that's opposed to him, he knows that. It's not something you can hide from him. And he is almighty. He can do all things. So often these we forget these about God. But there's a, there is a whole group of people that do these, that forget these things, even though they know them. All these teach us about God. But do they really reveal who he is? Or are they simply, as I'm describing here, his substance? If all this can be known... Uh, both as we said in his existence, we can know his existence and we can know all these things about the substance of God uh, when we see him in his creation and when we study him in his word. What then of God remains hidden and why does he hide it? More importantly, how and why and to whom does he reveal it? That's pretty significant. In Titus 1, verse 16, I'll just read this for you. Titus 1, verse 16, they profess to know God, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. In works they deny him. Being abominable, again, not my words, God's, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So largely how they're living, what they're doing, how they're responding to their knowledge of the existence of God and the substance of God is not nothing's happening to change who they are, what they're doing, how they're living, largely because they're still stuck in abominable paths, disobedient paths, and disqualified paths. Many think they know God today, many. And many openly profess this, but it does not show by their works. Their knowledge of his existence and substance does not change who they are. The stench of dead works still plague them. That's what abominable means, stench. They do not obey his word. They are, in fact, disobedient to his word. And I'm not, I'm not trying to put them down. This is not a condemnation. And as we go through all these mysteries, I want us all to understand this. Those who do not understand these, we are not to condemn. We do not put down. We love them because God is love and we're learning to be love as he is. This is not condemning them. This is trying to give us a better understanding of what we are supposed to aspire to because these things have been revealed to us. Don't just sit there and go, well, that's interesting, and walk out the door and be the same thing you were before. And never grow and change because of what you're hearing. Again, many think they know God and profess him. 
but it does not show in their works. Number one, abominable. The stench of dead works still plagues them. They don't obey God's word, even though they may even read it or hear it every Sabbath. Or whenever they read a magazine or open the Bible themselves, but it doesn't change them. Can God reveal who he is to them? And the last word, disqualified. They do not stand the test of trials. The heat comes, the birds come and take away the seed. It never actually gains any ground. It, it doesn't cultivate and grow within them. Why? Beyond why, can God reveal who he is to them? Again, this is largely a chosen blindness. This is not something that God uh, causes, but it is something he allows for now. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. So he does not hear, but we also cannot see his expression, his pleasure, or even his disdain. We don't even, we're not even focused on it. Look at Numbers 12 here. We went here recently in a different context, but this uh, speaks volumes on this the subject, so I want to read this. This is when Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, felt free to do so, felt that they were on the same level of relationship with God that Moses was on, and by that assumption they got into trouble. Numbers 12, verses 1 through 8. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. This is not about that, okay? Whether that was right or wrong was between Moses and God. That's what he will tell them in a moment. What God would be addressing here is their disdain for him and their assumption that they had the same level of relationship with him that Moses had. Verse 2, so they, so they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Same attitude as you see in Korah's rebellion in number 16. Verse 4, suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, of, uh, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went, bef- uh, went forward. Then he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. God knew that about him. Verse 8. I speak with him face to face. Literally translated, this means mouth to mouth. I know when I say that you think of a practice dummy and breathing. This is, this is Moses and God communicating completely openly with one another. Nothing hidden. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, not in dark sayings, none of the things he can't understand. And he sees the form of God. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? This is Miriam and Aaron, members of Israel, leaders 
in their own capacity, Aaron, high priest, the example of God. But they did not have God's spirit. Moses did. Moses had a direct connection to God because of that. It's something that was dispersed among some of the leaders later on to help him make decisions, run Israel, and so on. But not everyone then had it. And you see by some of their actions, this and other things that Aaron and others did. Though Miriam and Aaron believed in and knew God, they did not understand or share in his relationship with Moses. Did they understand who God was or was there something in them that God could not reveal to them? What was the difference? Moses was led by God's Spirit. Absent engaging in God's process of conversion, which leads to that, repentance, faith, baptism, the laying on of hands, the giving of God's Spirit. There's only so much that can be known about God. Let's look at that third category. We looked at existence, which is obvious. We've looked at substance, which if you read God's word, you can understand about God. But what is still hiding? Knowing God in essence. Knowing him in essence. See, God hides and reveals who he is. Only those led by God's spirit into all truth can truly know who God is. Look at John sixteen thirteen here. These are all scriptures you're all very familiar with. We review them again, Passover every year. John 16, verse 13. It's a real critical statement. It's repeated a couple of times later on, but I, I want to use this one, or actually earlier than this in chapter 14 uh, and 15. Uh, but let's just look here. John 16, verse 13. Um. However, when it, this is the power of God's spirit, the spirit of truth, as it's called here, the spirit of truth, because it leads into all truth, has come, it will guide you into all truth. For it will not speak of its own authority, but whatever it hears, it will speak. And it will tell you things to come. The spirit of truth which if we follow, we become the kind of individuals, we become, we become individuals to which God can share his very heart. Share with things he would keep from others because they would not value them as they should and maybe even belittle them, causing them great sorrow and pain. Look at John 14, verses 15 and, and verse 21. I'd like to read these from the New Living Translation. Um, I like the way they're phrased there. doesn't change any of the doctrinal integrity here. John 14, verse 15 from the New Living Translation says, Christ is saying, If you love me, obey my commandments. Is there anything unclear in that? I mean, if we want to get into an elitist academic intellectual discussion, we could pick this to pieces, lose its whole intent, and, and somebody will find a way out. God gives us enough rope to hang ourselves. If you love me, obey my commandments. 
That's a distinguishing factor. Can God reveal who he is, his very heart, to someone who is not obeying his commandments? That says something about someone. And if we keep them, his commandments, if we obey them, it says something about us. Verse 21 now. Christ speaking again. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Don't think for one moment that keeping God's commandments is such a privilege that it isn't core, that it isn't foundational to who we are and in knowing who God is. Let's look at Second First Corinthians here. First Corinthians chapter 2. We read this last week, uh, and we may go to it quite a bit in the next 14 or 12 or 13 messages. I don't know how they'll lay out yet in these mysteries. But it's something that we should keep in mind in this context. First Corinthians 2, we'll just read verses uh, 12 through 16. Last week, I think we did the whole chapter. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. That's a reference to these mysteries. Verse 13, these things we also speak, not in words in which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual we should never get into this, this concept of comparing ourselves to do, those who haven't given this privilege of knowing God and saying we're better than them. If you, if you believe what God says and you should, you should recognize that he chose us because we're not better than them. But this privilege of the knowledge of these mysteries defines who we are and opens a door to knowing things about God they won't understand. Spiritual things with spiritual things, not spiritual to the physical. Paul said that's incredibly unwise to compare ourselves with others. This is spiritual principles. Why we believe what we believe. Foundational core descriptions of who we are that mirror who God is. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. See, absent of God's spirit, these things can't be known. Uh, The substance, the existence of God can be known. But the deeper aspects of who God is in his heart cannot be revealed. They can't be revealed to them. Verse 15. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Talking about last week, appreciating and valuing what God has given us. We have the mind of Christ. Talk about a privilege and a responsibility. The mind of Christ is what enables us to understand, worship, and emulate the very heart of God. Not just an existence and substance, 
not just in ceremony, not just in knowledge, but in the kind of way that changes who we are in response to it. Look at Ephesians 3 here. Ephesians and Colossians will probably come back to a lot, and even even Corinthians, because uh, Paul uses this concept of mysteries uh, to help us to understand the special nature of our calling, but also the responsibility that we have to it. Ephesians 3, we'll read verses 8 through 19. Ephesians 3, verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this is how Paul saw himself because of the things he had done in the past, this grace was given, this favor, this, this responsibility was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see unsearchable. What makes them unsearchable? God doesn't reveal them. Is that in his existence and substance? No, it's pretty obvious. His word and the the creation around us. What here is unsearchable? And why is it unsearchable? It takes God's spirit leading one into all truth to understand them before God can reveal them. Um, Verse 9 again. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This is not about, notice where this is directed. This is not about the church running out there and converting everybody in the world. That's not God's plan in this age. He does the converting. He does the calling. He does the election. Who is this directed to? The principalities and powers in the heavenly places. We, by our changing nature to become as God, prove his plan. He can recreate himself, starting with lowly flesh. I see these, these weak, in in many cases insubordinate, those who take their own way, their own ideas, who reject me now, I will convert them. God will change them. It'll be to his glory, not ours, not the church. We are just the example. He took the base of humanity and made them God beings. He can do the rest. He can do the rest as well. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. I, I know, I know that I come across sometimes as arrogant. Uh, stems from my first 26 years. But don't ever mistake confidence for arrogance. I represent it poorly. But this is something that we must be so confident in, in this age, to endure what lies ahead of us and to do the work he's given us to do in this age. Verse 13. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. They heard about his suffering and were concerned about him. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees to the, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. This is about family. This is about a home. This is about a level of relationship, son and daughter to father, that most can't understand. 
though they may know his existence and substance. Something deeper there. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, a spiritual nature within us, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, everyone whose God's, his mind, their mind has been opened and who know God at the level of his heart, um, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is so much higher than simply understanding that God exists or accepting that or understanding from the scriptures what his substance is. Every one of those should be pointing you to a deeper relationship with him that is different than anybody who he has not revealed this to could have unless they go through that same conversion process that you went through and have his spirit and are led into all truth by it. Think of this. We have the opportunity to know God's thoughts, his will. We know his passions. We know his conscience, and we share in those. We share in his plans, his hopes, his joys, his concerns, and he shares with us who are led by his spirit to truly love and emulate him. This is a whole different level than existence and substance. And it makes us special in this age by his choice, not ours. This is not something we assign to ourselves. This is something assigned to us. In Romans 8 and verse 14, I'll just read this. Romans 8 verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. His family will surely see their father in all of his creation. His family will certainly study his substance in all of his word, but he will also share with his family that which he hides from all others, his very heart. Brethren, God requires our resilient obedience to his every word and our adoring emulation of his loving nature before he reveals who he is to us. This is a great mystery, probably the biggest of all the mysteries. One he reveals only to his children, his family in this age. God's existence can be seen in his creation. God's substance can be learned from his word. But God's essence, who he really is, will only be revealed by him to those truly led by his Holy Spirit to love and emulate who he really is.